Hello, I'm Jason Lewis. And I'm Todd Deshida. And this is the Climate Optimist. Starting this week, we figured we'd have a little spot focused on reasons for hope. Before you get going on that, I have a big piece of news that needs to be relayed. My allergies are a lot better this week than they were last. And that's the most important news of the day. We just wasted five seconds talking about your allergies. We did, and I know there's a lot to get to, but it had to be said. So this week's reason for hope, wanted to share that while some may be aware that China committed this last September to be carbon neutral by 2060, not 2050 like when we need, but 2060 nonetheless, they have uh, announced an ambitious tree planting campaign, kind of like no other. Starting this year, for each year through 2025, they're planning on planting 14,000 square miles of trees. And for context, that's basically like planting enough trees to cover Massachusetts and Connecticut each year from now until 2025. That's it? I'm just kidding. (laughs) That's massive. Boy, I tell you, when they do something, they do something. Yeah, they don't mess around. It's not like the U.S. I mean, they just say it and they're like, we're going to do this or else. (laughs) It happens, right? Unlike the U.S. government likes to talk a lot about doing good things, but it's the flip of a coin about whether it actually turns out. When China says they're going to do something, it actually gets done. I actually read that China's been planting trees for a long time as an effort to halt desertification. Hmm. And so there's also underlying strategies here aside from just you know climate mitigation. It's also adaptation and being able to stop the desert from growing. But I thought that was a cool piece of news. That is awesome. That's great. I actually think the 2060 thing is pretty huge, really. It is. So to me, I mean, you know, they're kind of growing, and I, I'm sure it's hard for them to think about putting the brakes on some of that right now. So that's cool for them. I'm glad. Yeah, I, and we'll get into more kind of like yeah. where we stand on current emissions, but I, I do think it's big. You know, I, I would like to see it move to 2050, Yeah, but it's a, it's a great start. Definitely. This week, our topic is focusing in on the latest report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. It's a tongue twister. The IPCC, it was released back in early August, and the headline really read, Climate Change is Widespread, Rapid, and Intensifying. Those are three adjectives I don't know that I really want to hear associated with climate change. But nonetheless, that that's their assessment, and this hopefully serves as a wake-up call for anybody out there who is still reticent to commit to, you know, really taking action on climate. This is actually the sixth assessment cycle they've done. I was reading they started these assessments back in 1988, if you can believe that. Right. That's that's a little ways back. Which does beg the question why it's taken until assessment number six for us to, you know, be... Actually, on, on YouTube, I watched, a, it was, I think, through TEDx... It was a uh, Dr. Von Walden from WSU was talking about the kind of the beginnings of these assessment reports until now, and how good were the forecasts then? And uh, right. it's obviously they were right, but they were actually kind of undershot a lot of what's happened here, which is terrifying, you know. So, you know, I think it's obvious where where this has gone and where it's going, and you know, this latest report's obviously pretty on the nose, I think, for for what's going on. Indeed. And and in some ways, the report's sort of a prequel to the upcoming UN Climate Summit that'll be in Glasgow 
in early November. So this is sort of Paris 2.0. Okay. And the goals there are really to drill into, you know, what's the plan to ensure we stay within 1.5 degrees Celsius of warming, talking about how to help countries adapt because, you know, climate change is already happening and we need to be mindful of those countries that are being hit hardest talking about how to solidify the commitments around basically developed countries putting forth money to f- to focus that to countries that are less fortunate are going to be you know adversely impacted right yeah so it's it's going to be a big meeting yeah so this so this is kind of you're saying paris accord 2.0 so this is really a critical chance to kind of get us going in the right direction here i mean like this one seems <laughs> i don't know if it's just me but this one seems like it's we got to do this now and we're still kind of the big dog in the yard here in the U.S., you know, and so we we really have to kind of be the leader here. I mean, I I hope we are, and I think everybody's looking for us to be. I hope we don't disappoint on that. Yeah, I I think it's right to say the stakes are high, and I don't like it when you know people are overly alarmist. But mm-hmm. I think it's fair to say that this is the pivotal summit. So I don't know if it's a a disclaimer that we need to make, but I know that some might point out that there is an inconsistency between climate optimists being the name of our show (laughs) and the findings in this latest IPCC report. (laughs) And so I just want to acknowledge the fact that I know that that's the case, but assure folks that there are reasons for, for optimism despite the things that are scary and, and dark about it. Jason's a big downer. <laughs> you know, I, I actually, I'm a glass half full person. Some would say a realist, but not really a pessimist. But I'm just saying it's hard to be positive about negative news, and I don't want to spin it that way. I just want to be real with folks that that this is some scary stuff in this report, and it's it certainly is disheartening to see. And we're going to talk about reasons for hope despite the things that we should obviously be alarmed at. So I thought as we're talking about or digging into this latest IPCC report that it might be good to give folks some context as to why 1.5 degrees Celsius warming is, is important. I actually found there's a IPCC report that's focused specifically on 1.5 degrees warming versus you know 2.0 hmm. and, and what that means and I think the way to look at it is that 1.5 degrees is really sort of a tipping point it obviously doesn't happen necessarily right at 1.5 degrees right uh, there's but they they needed to sort of draw a line in the sand and 1.5 degrees was that decision that you know obviously any warming is going to be damaging but sure I think the point here was like, you know, we can't accept really risk beyond that. Yeah. Bad stuff starts to go down if we get, you know, in the 1.5 territory. And so, you know, that, that means things like more severe weather events. It means the risk to, you know, species loss. And it means that, you know, we're talking about sea level rise being a lot larger. So Mm -hmm. 1.5 is really that place where, we want to stay within if we can. And in order to do that, the IPCC in their report had talked about sort of two data points. One, we really need to cut emissions by 
45 percent by by 2030 so my math is right we've got about nine years left (laughs) yeah okay on, on that and that we need to continue cutting emissions down to net zero by 2050 so we got to get 45% in the first 10 years and then the rest of the way in the next 20, yeah. Correct. So I think the idea is let's take care of all the low-hanging fruit first. Yeah. It's like compound interest. Exactly. Right? Like, you know, what you do early has a bigger impact on what happens later. Yeah, because every, you know, ton of CO2 that we're putting up there is causing more warming. So I think the point is make some big big cuts right away and then continue to squeeze down emissions to the point where we're basically zero by middle century. Right. You know, one of the biggest things I noticed was kind of some language changes. I mean, I think the language was strong before, but now, you know, it was just without a doubt they're saying that humans are causing warming unequivocally. That's the word they use. So, I mean, I, it's it's obvious what's going on here. Yeah. I mean, for those of us who've been paying attention over the years, it doesn't really come as a surprise. No. But but I think it's good to sort of get rid of any remaining doubt or wiggle room for folks who want to continue to talk about, do we really know and how much are we causing it and on and on. This really just slams the door shut. Exactly. The confidence in, in the models has also improved a lot. Mm-hmm. And that's good in that now we know kind of where we're headed, you know, have a better sense of where we're headed if we, we don't curb emissions as well as the benefits we'll see if we if we do start to curb emissions at the rate that, that they're saying we should. Right. So the report takes a look at five different scenarios and each of those is sort of a different flavor of emissions. There's kind of the high-end scenarios which basically say we're going to keep on, you know, burn baby burn. Mm-hmm. And then there's we're going to take this seriously and make rapid cuts I don't know about you, but when I looked at the graphs there, I was very drawn to the ones and the outcomes tied to the low emission scenarios. <laughs> yeah. So in in the lowest scenario, we're going to still continue to see warming until until 2050. But after that point, you'd start to see temperatures fall again. You know, 30 years is a long way away, but I felt like it was a positive sign to see that in our near future, we could be moving back in the right direction you know, we can change this stuff, right? We have control yeah. of this. And, you know, there's things that obviously we, we're going to have to do together and things that we're going to have to pressure our leaders to do. And those are going to be huge. And th- then there's things that we can do ourselves, you know, like some of our first episodes talking about switching to EVs. Yeah, agreed. I mean, basically electric vehicles and renewable energy are two levers that we can pull right away. And, to your point, right? I mean, this is sort of a path diverged in the wood, right? We just decide which one we want to take. And everybody listening and is thinking, well, yeah, let's let's take the low scenario. But I think it is going to be up to us to exert that pressure to ensure that takes place. As we're thinking about this latest report, one of the things at least I found myself asking was, well, kind of where do we stand in terms of emissions? And what I mean by that is there have been excuses, poor ones, put forth by certain politicians that like, you know, the U.S. can't solve climate change, so why should we do anything about it? Like, let's just, you know, we're not going to worry about the hole that we drilled in the side of the boat because the one that the (laughs) other person drilled was bigger, right? Yeah, right. So, 
I thought it would be interesting to take a look at those numbers and while I don't want to overwhelm people with stats, at least give people a sense of kind of relatively speaking where things stand. Mm -hmm. So the first way you can kind of slice up emissions is looking at countries and regions and what their relative contribution is. You've got China at number one, which I think most folks are aware. You've got the U.S. at number two, the European Union at number three, and then India and Russia. And what's interesting is if you take those five and put them together, that actually represents 60% of global emissions. Wow. Again, you know, focusing on the things to be optimistic about. I mean, that's less countries that you have to get into agreement and making progress to be able to get us to where we need to be. The other thing that's interesting is that China at roughly a quarter of global emissions and then the U.S. and the European Union put together also about a quarter. So between the European Union, the U.S. and China, that's about roughly 50%. If you look at China, they're obviously the largest right now. They're about double the U.S., but per capita, we're, we're double them. It's easy to, I think, focus on them, but, you know, obviously we should be looking at ourselves too. And, and you know, obviously if you look at throughout history, we've pumped more carbon into the system than anybody. Well, and you make a, a good point about the per capita emissions and the total historical emissions. Mm-hmm. You know, I know, depending on the statistics you look at, like you can you can take this and, and spin it differently. But I think the bottom line is we know that everybody's sort of got accountability in this. And so how do we, to your point, how do we work together to, to make progress? Yeah, exactly. So the other way that I think is interesting to kind of look at emissions is to look at them by sector. You have, you know, electricity, so, you know, power generation stands at about a quarter. Land use, which is really, you know, agriculture, forestry management, et cetera, that's also about a quarter. And then you have, after that, you have industry, which is basically all the fossil fuels consumed on site uh, for the purposes of heat or chemical reactions associated with, let's say, producing certain products, that's about 20%. Transportation, what we've talked about is higher in the U.S., globally is about 15%. Mm -hmm. And then you have, after that, you have buildings, which is really burning fossil fuels to to heat those buildings. Natural gas and stuff like that. Exactly. And then the thing I didn't realize until I looked at these stats is you have kind of this other bucket, which is 10%, and that's just associated with all things sort of fossil fuels, extraction through refinement. And that's pretty huge when you think about it. That seems high. I mean, I guess there's a lot of it, but man, that seems kind of outrageous. Yeah, and I I suspect, I don't want to get too far out on a limb here, but I think think part of that is, you know, the methane that's that's emitted, you know, Mm. off-gassing, things like that. Sure. So it's sort of a doubling benefit when you remove the consumption side of fossil fuels. You're cutting that extraction and refining emissions as well. When I looked at this, two things sort of struck me. One, kind of hinted at this earlier, if we focus on the things that we have today, like renewable energy and electric vehicles, and we accelerate those transitions, those alone would get us to 40% of global emissions. If you, you know, you talk about... That's awesome. It is awesome. Yeah, I mean, that's really significant because that can be done. I mean, that's, we can see the light at the end of that tunnel, I feel like. Yeah, and it's a good light, right? It's, it's yeah. <laughs> yeah, right, right. 
And and the, the other thing that I think is interesting was when you look at land use, some of the land use practices, if you talk about things like agriculture, have the potential to be sort of a dual benefit. So by moving to practices that emit less carbon, you know, you also are in many ways increasing the ability of that land to sequester carbon. So you, you get this kind of double benefit. So with all this discussion of emissions, you know, I guess it begs the question, what's, what's the solution? And I think while personal actions are great and we all should be doing what we can to, to model the right behavior, we need government action here. And that's the only thing that's going to get us to where we need to be. Right. To your point earlier, the U.S. needs to, to lead in terms of actual policy changes. I know we, we've lost a little bit of credibility when it comes to being a leader on the environment our you know withdrawal and then return to Paris I suspect and understandably that there's parts of the world who wonder which U.S. is showing up on which day mm-hmm. <laughs> you know all that aside I still think we have an important role to play getting back to your point about you know us being the largest economy and what we do is going to have sort of a, a follow-on impact so, yeah, there's no single solution when it comes to climate change, but a carbon price and a border adjustment are, are two critical steps. Mm. Some may be wondering what a border adjustment is, I can explain, but in essence, when we talk about pricing carbon, it's, you know, let's put the price on the commodity that we want to, to regulate and have it reflect the real impact. And so the, the mechanism that's touted as the most efficient and pushed by a lot of economists is, is a carbon tax. In an ideal world, that would also be a revenue-neutral carbon tax where you'd be returning money to households. And the benefit of that is that you have a lot of folks, especially low-income folks, that are going to be adversely impacted, you know, if you have a price on carbon. Right, right. Because a larger share of their, you know, their income is is associated with things that are carbon-intensive. For sure. And so having that money come back to those households is, is going to be key. So... First step, a carbon tax that's that's ideally you know revenue neutral, and then a, a border adjustment, which is really kind of a you know a carbon tariff, if you will. And the trade folks may come after me on this one, but you're you're hmm. really putting an adjustment that says any you know products coming in, whatever those products are, if they're coming from a place that doesn't have strict emission controls, a price is going to be levied on them. Right. The other thing that does is it avoids what they call carbon leakage. So, you know, if you if we put really strict, you know, emission reduction plans in place in the US or a carbon tax, then you don't have those companies moving overseas just to avoid it. I do feel just like a simplistic level in some ways we talked about this about the US in this next meeting here in Glasgow. And I just feel like don't we kind of owe it? To everybody else to lead this thing, I mean, I people he- hate to hear that stuff. Sometimes they hate to hear that we owe anything to the world, and they feel like we've done all this great stuff. And I think we have done some great stuff. But if you think about it, you know, we're like five percent of the world's population. We use about thirty percent of the resources, and we've kind of ridden on everybody else's coattails in some ways for a long time. You know what I mean? We've kind of been living high on the hog, you know, so to, so to speak. And, you know, we want to be a leader and we want to, 
we want to save the world. We've got a military that's bigger than the next seven. And here's this chance to do something. And it's got to be us. You know, I don't know what it takes to do that or what people, you know, what we have to do or how we have to get that message across to, to leadership. But, I mean, this is it, man. This is our chance to do something big, you know, as the United States. I just think we got to do it. We got to figure this out. I, I think you're completely right. And and we have the technology to it. We have the money to do it. To your point, right? We've been taking advantage of this system, this, you know, fossil fuel intensive system. And so, yeah, I mean, does that obligate us to do something? I don't know. But I think we bear certainly the bulk of the responsibility. And so if we can turn and, and be a leader on that, then it certainly seems like it makes it easier to ask everybody else to follow. Yeah. You know, like we got to lit, we got to go through all this growth and do all this stuff that we wanted to do. And now everybody's realized that, well, that kind of screwed stuff up. And now these other countries, they want to do this. And you got all these small countries out of there that are going to like feel the real effects of this anyway. And they're probably showing up to these tables at these things. And they're looking across here going, come on. You know what I mean? Like, now we're saying, everybody's saying, well, you, you can't do that now. You know, we, we got to worry about climate change. And it's like, we already got to live the benefits of that. And now we kind of got to pay it back. Yeah, our, our carbon vacation, I think, has come, come to an end here. <laughs> <laughs> we got to figure it out. We got to be a leader on this now. We do. I, I mean, that's a good segue. I think while you said before it can feel like a big lift to pick up the phone and call your member of Congress. If there was ever a time to do it, that time is now. And we need to put a price on carbon. We need to have a border adjustment in place that avoids that carbon leakage I talked about and puts pressure on other countries to step up. And we really need to pass that before this upcoming conference. Yeah. So we can come in and not just be blowing hot air. We've, you know, we've made some real commitments. Yeah, we do. So, you know, this probably hasn't been our cheeriest episode. (laughs) You know, I get into the end here and thinking, wow, like people aren't going to walk away with the hope that we normally promise. But but I do think there is a, a positive side here and that's what we've got in front of us. And we've got the technology to deal with the problem. You've got the, you know, IPCC has clearly laid out this path that we need to take to limit warming. And so now it's like, we just need to show up yeah, that's the hope. We got to take control of this and, and get on the horn and and call some Congress people and, and you know, knock some heads <laughs> a little bit. I mean, there's other things I'd like to do, but, I, yeah. you know, uh, we got to keep this respectful and diplomatic. But, yeah, I, I think this is the time to do it. We need to step it up, and and we have the tools. So, I think... From my perspective, we just need to remember that there isn't somebody else that's doing this on our behalf. And it's it's a huge risk to assume that somebody else has got it. I think if we look at the fact that the IPCC has been doing these things since 1988, it tells us that governments and business alone don't have it. Mm-hmm. And so who does that leave it to, right? It leaves it to us. Yeah. And if we don't speak up on this, then it doesn't happen. Yeah. If we do, we control the dialogue and we force them to do what they need to do. Yeah. 
So with that, uh, <laughs> that positive note, thanks for tuning in this week. We'll be back again next week with more climate solutions and reasons for hope. In the meantime, if you're looking for resources to feel smart when you make that critical call to your member of Congress, check out our website, climateoptimist.co. That's climateoptimist.co. And as always, follow us on social at Climate Stewards Collective. <laughs>